You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So how do you know if a tree is healthy? And I know that sounds like a trick question, and it kind of sort of is. How do you know if a tree is healthy? Most of us run to the exact same answer. What is it? Now you don't want to say it because I spooked you. You know a tree is healthy if it has fruit, right? And I think that totally makes sense, right? Because look at the fruit on the tree. You see the tree. You go, okay, it's growing. This is good. Healthy. I think there's a different answer, maybe a more complete answer. And I think it's a little more thought-provoking. How do you know if a tree is really, really healthy? Here's the answer that I like. More trees. You know a tree is healthy when fruit falls and over time it leaves an orchard. John 12, 24 says this. This is Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Your life is a seed, and that seed has profound purpose, and that purpose is always bigger than you. So, welcome to this morning. This is just kind of week three of our five-week series called Restored. It's a look into the life of Paul, this guy whose life was totally captured by Jesus and turned around for Jesus. And so week one, we talked about like Paul as a disciple. Just this guy, how did he meet Jesus and how did that change his life? Last week, Pastor Dave talked about Paul as a missionary. And uh, I had to watch online. I wasn't here last week. And so I missed it. But Dave did a great job. Today we're going to be talking about Paul as a church planter. What does that mean? And how do we do that? What is that even about? Then we're going to walk into Paul as a pastor. How did he pastor a church? And then we're going to wrap up this series in a couple weeks. Paul as a martyr, somebody who gave his life to the person who gave his life for him. Here's where we're going today, though, just to let you know. We're going to take a look at how Paul planted a church in a city called Corinth. Corinth. He devoted more ink to the church in Corinth than any other place. 29 chapters he wrote to this church over two different letters. The church is a remarkable story, but here's a quick summary. Where the gospel focuses, power falls. Where the gospel focuses, power falls. So before we get to Corinth, let's talk about where Paul has been. When Paul arrives in Corinth, he gets there at a career low point and an emotional low point. You ever been in a place like that? Here's the context for Paul. He's been to this city called Thessalonica. Try and say that five times fast. Go ahead. Don't do it. Thessalonica. He's been to Thessalonica. He's staying with a Greek man named Jason. 
Paul goes to the synagogue. He tries to share Jesus. And here's what happens in Acts 17, verse 5. The story of Thessalonica goes like this. The Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men into the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city into an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. Now, here's he's talking about Paul and those who want to make much of Jesus. He says, these men who turned the world upside down have come here also. Slide down a couple verses. How's this turn out? The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So wanting to share Jesus, Paul starts a riot. Awesome. Gets out by the skin of his teeth. Then things go from bad to worse. He leaves Thessalonica and he goes to Athens. Athens is like the center point of all Greek philosophy and learning. If you want to be a good Greek, Athens is like where everything comes from. So Paul gets to town. He heads to the public lecture stage, which was literally a thing. Think like public amphitheater plus open mic night. Here's the result of what happens in Athens. Acts 17, verse 32 says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, because that's part of the gospel, some mocked Paul. Another said, well, we'd like to hear some more from you about this. What's the result? So Paul went out from their midst. So most scholars believe that what happens in Thessalonica and then what happens in Athens is Paul stepping up to the plate and like swinging a miss, strike two. He doesn't see a whole lot of response. And so a lot of scholars believe that this icy response prompts a shift in Paul's ministry strategy where the gospel focuses power falls. So thinking about Corinth, here is his ministry strategy in his own words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you can just listen or read on the screen. When I came to you, brothers, now he's talking about Corinth, this church. I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's like, I'm not, I'm not using tactics. <laughs> For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, where the gospel focuses, power falls. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What's he mean? Here's my summary. When I came to Corinth, I wanted to keep things simple. Just back to the basics where the gospel focuses power falls. I didn't come trying to impress anyone. I didn't come to wow anyone. No frills. I just chose to shoot straight. I wanted to speak simply and plainly, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wanted to pare things down, strip things back. I wanted to reduce the message to a minimum, Christ alone. And I did all that because it's better for you to have your faith rest on God's convincing, not mine. This is Paul's heart in Corinth. This is Paul so wisely saying, I love you too much to put up any potential idol in front of you. I'm going to eliminate your ability to love anything else, preaching style, worship style, whatever. I'm taking it all away so you can see one thing, just Christ. I want there to be only one thing you accept or reject, just Christ. He's the only dividing line. Why? Because where the gospel focuses, power falls. Pretty solid ministry strategy, if you ask me. Tell me our world doesn't need a little bit of that today. 
Pretty selfless, too, by the way, because there is always the temptation for those in positions of spiritual influence to build their private kingdoms at the expense of Christ's kingdom. So Thessalonica in Athens, when he walks into Corinth, he's a bit of a shoegazer. He's down, but he's got a small ember of fresh fire glowing in his gut. He's a little deflated from Thessalonica and Athens, but resolved for what lies ahead in Corinth. He's got an 0-2 record, but he's eager about his new game plan. And all that brings us to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. You can join me there. Acts chapter 18. Here's how this church in Corinth gets its start. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, Natum of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. So he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, we're going to come back to this in a minute, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Corinth, all right, Corinth is a cosmopolitan city. In Paul's day, over 200,000 people lived in Corinth. It's massive for the world at the time. Greeks, sla uh, slaves who were freed from Italy, Roman army vets, aspiring businessmen and businesswomen live in Corinth. Corinth was the favorite city of the Roman emperors, being selected as the host site for the Pan-Isthmian Games, an ancient version of what we think of as the modern Olympics. Corinth was also home to the goddess Aphrodite, whose temple boasted 1,000 temple prostitutes. Put simply, Corinth was a dark place where Jesus needed to be made known. So Paul moves into town with a sober heart and smoldering ember expectations. Since Jewish law commanded that young theological students learn a trade, Paul learned tent making. He learned leather making. Incidentally, I love that idea. Like while you're going to seminary, you gotta learn a trade. I would like to learn fly fishing as a trade. I think that'd be great. <laughs> But this is like a backup plan. This is like something to supplement your income. And so Paul chose leather. It's likely when he got to Corinth, he tried to find other leather workers because he was low on money. He needed to support himself. He would have been directed to a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They're always paired together in the New Testament. But interestingly, this is the only time where Aquila's name comes first. Every other time, it's Priscilla and Aquila, which is either an indication of her higher social standing or greater influence in the life of the church. File that one away for later. This is a couple who are living like functional refugees in Corinth, having been forced to leave Rome when Claudius expelled all Jews in 49 AD. The three form a very deep friendship. Later, Paul would talk about them and say that they risked their lives for him. Eventually, they'll follow Paul to Ephesus, where they mentor a young pastor named Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila will also host a church in their home. Here's what I want us to see. At North Canton Chapel, when we talk about living life on mission, when we talk about things like rhythms and spaces, this is it. <laughs> These three people are just Christians who love Jesus, are burdened for their city. They're mutually burdened and commonly committed to the cause. And their strategy is simple. They want to show Jew Jewish people in Corinth that Jesus is the promised one. They want to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and that by putting your faith in him, 
You can be saved. This is their goal. This is their strategy. And this is what breaks their heart. So how does it go? Any better than Thessalonica? Any better than Athens? Take a look in verse 5. Two other people show up on the scene. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, which means that like this dude was after it. He was occupied with the word. And when they opposed and reviled him, that's not Silas and Timothy, by the way. That's the people he's trying to reach. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to him, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. And from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. This is Paul saying, fine. Rather than trying to pry open your hearts, I'm going to go where God seems to be working. Lots of fish in the river. I'm going to go over there. That little phrase in verse 6, where he shook out his garments, is a cultural term, symbolically saying, I'm breaking off relations with you. Kind of a first century version of... Just a quick little insight while we're here. While we're stopped, if that lands kind of coldly on you, because at first I'm like, oh man, come on, Paul. Something we need to remember is Christians are never responsible for the saving, but we are always responsible for the telling. So with the freshly shaken dust still falling off his heels, what does Paul do? And I absolutely love this in verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, Interesting little side note, his house was right next door to the synagogue. Like, do you catch that? He literally moves in right next door to the people who want him out of town. Like, super passive aggressive, but I really love that. This is like when your HOA says, hey, you can't mow your yard before 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Like, I'm not there in like 8.01. Fire it up. Like, let's go. I got stuff to do. Paul's on a mission, and I'm not going to let a little litigiousness stop me. Interestingly, our care and counseling pastor, John, and his wife, Lori, live right next to us, so that illustration may be more prescient than I realize in this moment. So. <laughs> but Paul's determined, like God's got something for him in this city. And I get the sense that that smoldering ember that happened when he was walking into town that he didn't know was going to materialize into anything, that barely glowing thing has kind of caught some kindling. It's ignited, and it's taken off into something really exciting. So Paul sets up shop in Titius's house within literal earshot of the synagogue next door. It's a pretty courageous move for Titius, by the way, showing a bold commitment to Christ. Must have been a little disconcerting, even a little disturbing, to have Paul right next door to... Hmm. What happens next? Take a look in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, okay, the dude in charge over there, whose job it was to watch what was happening in the synagogue, make sure that order was kept, make sure things don't go crazy. What happens to Crispus? Ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And this isn't, I don't know, maybe this is my imagination, which isn't always right, but isn't always bad either. <laughs> This is me just kind of imagining Paul preaching the gospel, sitting in Titius's house, and Crispus comes over. He talks about Jesus, and maybe through an open window or through an open door, their conversation is heard next door. 
Those in the synagogue hear the voice of their landlord say, all right, Paul, I'm with Jesus. What do we do now? And Paul goes, praise God, Crispus. You want to get baptized and make this public? He goes, why wouldn't I do that? Let's go. Sploosh. <laughs> and Crispus goes, hey, can my wife and my kids join in? And Paul goes, I don't know. Let's ask him. They're like, I don't know. You guys with Jesus? Yes, we're with Jesus. Sploosh, 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 sploosh. <laughs> Interestingly, this is the third time in the book of Acts already that the phrase household is mentioned, indicating that God's design is always for families. <laughs> and I know I'm pushing the football metaphor a little bit this morning. Paul's down 0-2. He's clear on his game plan for Corinth. He preaches an unclouded Jesus, and then here's like this 90-yard punt return <laughs> where the gospel focuses, power falls. And that word there in verse 8, hearing, believed, were baptized. The grammar in there suggests that this isn't just like a one-time thing, that this came to be the rhythm in Corinth. This is an ongoing pattern of Paul preaching an unclouded gospel where the gospel focuses, power falls. And then this, verse 9. Now, this is where things get amazing. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many people in this city who are my people. And so he stayed six months teaching the word of God among them. So the risen Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. He gives him three things. First, his presence. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. Then his protection. He says, no one's going to attack you. No one's going to harm you. They may not like you, but they're not going to harm you. His presence, his protection, and then his plan. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. And that's my favorite phrase in this whole scene. Here's why I love those words. The grammar there suggests that these aren't people who are already Christians that just need to get to know Paul. The grammar suggests that these are actually people who have yet to become Christians. <laughs> This is Jesus saying, like, look, I've got people marked in this city, Paul. Preach the gospel. Talk about Jesus. Go get them. All they need to be done is introduced. Where the gospel focuses, power falls. Now, what can we draw out of this? I want to take the next half of our message this morning and talk about what does this actually mean and how do we fit into this? Because up till now, this is just like, okay, great. That's what Acts 18 kind of looks like. What does that mean for us as a church? And what does it mean for you personally? What do we see here that informs our understanding of church planting or the movement of the church? Or better, why do we even have this scene in the whole Bible at all? What does God want us to see here? And so what I want to do first is I want to give us six church planting principles. Just six things that like, no matter where you are or what context you're in, what does it actually mean to plant a church? Is it just like starting a church, like building a building and like putting out an open sign and saying, hey, just come on in? What does church planting actually mean? And then I actually want to give us um, four things that I think many churches celebrate that could actually kill church planting. And then we'll wrap up and we'll talk about how we could fit into all this. So, principle number one. Church planning is always incarnational. You see this in this text, right? Incarnational is this word that means I want to get so close to a place that I become part of that place. Theologians talk about Jesus' incarnation as the moment that he became human, stepped into the world. Think about what incarnational means for church planning. 
To care for the crop is to care for the ground that it grows in. There's an ecological, conservationist element to church planning that goes beyond building a building or setting up shop somewhere and putting up an open sign, right? That's not what church is. Is church a building? No. Is church a place? No. Is church an event? No. What is church? Church is people. And so we need to be among Incarnational ministry always means moving to a place, learning a people, becoming burdened for a people to the point where you care for the place. If you lead them, you must learn them. If you learn them, you must love them. This is so profoundly Jesus-like. Help me out. Some of you guys know this one. The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Does anybody know what the message translation says there? The word became flesh and... Anybody know that one? The message is really like an interpretation. It's not like a translation. It says this, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that great? Like moved in and said, I'm going to be here. Practically, church planning is so much more than just a campus or exporting branding or spreading a franchise or building a building. The church has to feel like the community that it's in. This is the first piece. Principle number two, church planning is always done in the context of community. You see this here, right? Like Paul may have entered town alone, but community came really quick. Paul may have done the preaching and the teaching in the synagogue and across the table, but I'm pretty sure that Paul and Silas, and, or Timothy and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila had a role too. What's the point? Church is always a team sport. Not up to this guy. That was a great spot for an amen. You guys totally missed it. <laughs> Church is a team sport. Now, let me get really practical, and I'm probably going to tip my hand a little bit heavily here, but you'll forgive me. I do believe that God is going to call North Canton Chapel to plant churches again. We've planted three over the last season. But I believe that when that happens, we won't just be sending out a planter from within, although that definitely is part of the picture, but we'll also be sending 50 or 100 or 150 people with them. Some of you may be an answer to that prayer. Why is that important? Not just to fund the work, but to care for the place that that work is going on. That is super important. You guys got a little freaked out when I said that, didn't you? It's okay. Here's the real question, though, that at this point, I think I want to encourage us to start praying through. And I mean this. I hope some of us will be a part of this, the answer to this prayer. Will the North Canton Chapel be more interested in attracting and keeping or equipping and sending? Both of those things are super important. <laughs> but we have to have our eye to one or the other, depending on how the Lord is leading. Will we be more interested in attracting, attracting and keeping or equipping and sending? How do you know if a tree is healthy? Not just by how big it gets or how many apples are growing on the thing. But when those apples fall and those seeds get into the ground, how many other trees are around it? Third principle, church planting is driven by gospel proclamation. Oh gosh, this is gonna be good. The gospel is not, come to our church, hear a decent sermon. Come to our church, I like the music sometimes. The gospel is not, come to church, we've got coffee. Right? That's just marketing. And that's healthy and it's good. 
But the gospel is Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners. The gospel is Christ alone restores my relationship to God. The gospel is I am a great sinner and Jesus is a greater savior. Church planting then, by extension, is not just starting a church. It can't just be building a building where people show up. Church planting has to be, well, where are there people who are lost who need the Lord? How can we go there? Where are there people headed to hell? And how can we change that reality for the glory of God and the expansion of Christ's kingdom? Who needs to know the good news that Jesus Christ gives purpose and meaning to hopeless sinners? Do you know anyone? Where can I make Jesus known where they don't know him? Church planting is not spiritual entrepreneurship. Church planting is what happens when the people of God align their hearts with the purposes of God to steward the mission of God. Fourth, church planting usually means opposition. So when you look at the book of Acts, I don't know if you've read the book of Acts recently, but when you read Acts, it's like the unsales pitch for Christianity. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? You read Acts and like amazing things happen, but they always happen at the expense of our comfort. <laughs> It's like everywhere Jesus is preached, like there are little fires erupting. And I know that that sounds really glum, but let's remember, first off, Jesus promised this. Back in John 15, he says, look, if they hated me, guess what? <laughs> They're not going to like you very much either. But I think the second piece of that is understanding opposition, is opposition is usually the price you pay for meaningful ministry. Church is not a cruise ship, Right? It has to be looked at differently. If you want a job where everybody's happy, go sell ice cream, right? Which is really funny, because there's a family in our church where he does exactly that, and he's a pretty happy dude, I think, most of the time. But I think this is worth acknowledging, that if we're looking for an expression of Christianity without suffering, we are looking for an expression of Christianity without Christ. The gospel is necessarily offensive because it involves like sin and self and sacrifice and surrender. And here's the principle of this whole situation is that the gospel is offensive on its own. We needn't be. Like John Piper says, we become winsome weirdos. Love that. Christianity won't ever be popular, and if it is, it's not Christianity. Number five, church planting rests on God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Go back to Paul's vision in Acts 18, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have many in this city who are my people. And I know that this opens up the conversation about predestination and free will. So can we go here for just a second, as long as you're feeling nervous? What does that mean? Does that mean like God just chose people and like, or is it like a free will thing? Like we choose him. So let me be clear. I believe the Bible teaches both. How about that? I just confused half of you and made the other half mad, so it's okay. Please hear me for a second. Without a doubt, God is sovereign. Without a doubt, God knows who are his. Jesus says this in John 10, 14. Without a doubt, Jesus has ordained that the lost will come to faith through the preaching of the gospel. But I have never seen anybody walking around with a little flashing neon sign above their head saying, I'm predestined to preach to me. What that means is that, yes, that is absolutely true. However, we are called to preach the gospel to the lost whether by word out of our mouth or by demonstration out of our lives. And I think the point that I want us to see here is that actual, that idea gives us the confidence that makes mission meaningful. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. 
The fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet to wrap this whole thing up tells me that there's still people in this world that need to hear about him. And he's got his hand on the doorknob of time and he's ready to open the door and he's just waiting for a couple more introductions to be made. And so that tells me that both of those things can actually coexist. Number six, and then we'll get on to something else. Church planting takes time. It takes time. Go back to the planting metaphor for a second. I am not a gardener. Terrible at it. I admire people who are gardeners who plant things in their backyard and watch them grow and then they give tomatoes to their friends for like years. I'm just not that person. I'm not that patient. I really respect you people and I welcome your tomatoes. But here's the thing about church planting. You can't do it quick. Like you could stand over that tomato plant and like pray over it all you want. And like you can squeeze that bulb all you, it's not, they don't even have bulbs. See, that shows you how little I know about tomatoes. <laughs> like it just takes time. And it's the Lord's timing. I have never seen, rarely, spiritually significant things happen quickly outside of conversion. Just my experience. This takes time and care and thoughtfulness and awareness and attentiveness. Now, those are those six. Just want you to sit with those for a second. Now, here's the thing. You didn't come here this morning for a lecture on church planting methods. So we got to turn this a bit. And we got to go, okay, what does this even mean? I want to move this from, oh, that's interesting, to, oh, this is for me. And so I want to give you four fatal celebrations. Four fatal celebrations. Things that we could celebrate as a church, looking at the life of the Apostle Paul as a model, and go, that's where we could miss it. Here's the first one. Survivorship. Survivorship. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a conference up in Michigan um, with a group of other pastors, and we were all talking about, like, COVID. Remember that whole thing? And, like, 2020. And remember that whole thing? That great year? And we were all kind of comparing notes and sort of commiserating a little bit about how churches kind of went in that time. And it was actually profoundly healing just to hear other people and, and walk through that stuff. And for me, like... I'm just going to get maybe personal just for a second. Like, so I was, I was welcomed to be your lead pastor in January of 2020, and we had like 10 weeks of normalcy. It was, it was wonderful. And then like, I feel like the ship just like exploded, right? We went from being a church of like 950 people to being like 350 people overnight. And like, I got really panicky because like, I didn't know what to do. And I did what most people did, the same thing. Like, I just start grabbing things that were floating in the water to try and like, feel like if I could get enough to get buoyant, right? And what can we do to keep things together? That's a survivorship mentality. And I think that's a normal response to fear, crisis, or trauma, or whatever label you want to stick on it. But I feel like it represents a survivorship mentality, which is naturally turning inward to preserve, rather than looking outward to serve. I'm not trying to beat myself up there, but I just don't feel like I led as well as I would have liked to in that season. And now we're back, higher than pre-COVID, which is great. Like, more people call North Canton Chapel home now than they have since, like, 2013 or something like that. It's remarkable to see what God's doing. And that's great, but here's what I wonder. Is once we've gathered up all the scraps from the broken ship, all the little pieces of the programs and the timings and the rhythms and all the things that churches kind of do, once we've gathered them all back up, will we just re reassemble exactly what we had before or will we partner with God to build something better? And this may sound a little salty. Boat in the ocean pun, absolutely intended. But in this picture of like church as a giant cruise ship just parting through the water, I think that masks some things that we'd actually rather hide. And please don't mishear what I'm about to say, but I think sometimes God brings the storm so that he can center the focus. 
where the gospel focus is power falls. We've made it, and that's great. Well done. Now what? Second fatal celebration is um, beyond just survivorship. I think church growth can be a fatal celebration. Lots of things grow. Doesn't mean they're healthy. Mold grows in the bathroom, right? Cancer grows. This time of year, Steelers fans grow. Sorry, just trying to lighten the load a little bit. Oh, that was, you can't do that. No way. Just joking. <laughs> but here's the shocking reality, and this sits with me hard as a pastor. You can grow a church and never make disciples. You realize that, right? You can grow a church and never reach lost people. You can grow a church and never deepen your faith. You can grow a church, like all you need is the right branding, the right programming, like a decent preacher, and you will be celebrated for that. That's the toxic thing about it. Church growth is fatal success. It's usually very empty at the end. And as a pastor, that kind of freaks me out because when I stand before the Lord, what he's not going to ask me is, hey, how are your quarterly numbers? And those are important, but those can't be the only thing. He's not going to say, hey, did you like add on to the building or anything? He's not going to say, like, well, did your graph go up and to the right? What he is going to ask me is, like, whatever those numbers were, were you faithful? Whatever that building was, did you use it for my glory? Whatever the numbers those were there, did you really love them and serve them? Did you care about the community that you're in? Being a part of a church that is growing, a large church that is growing, can stifle your growth because you can hide here. Right? Talk with a family who's coming from a small church, come through our new members process, and um, they're going, gosh, it's just so big here. And some of you have come from bigger churches, and you're going, gosh, it feels so small here. We are just big enough where you can hide. No one goes to heaven hiding in a group, though, right? And be very, very careful. Number three, involvement. Most churches our size have the same strategy. When churches get to a certain point, they go, hey, here's all our stuff. Here's the stuff you can sign up for. Here's the programs. Here's the things to do. Guys, we have a very, very involved church. 980 people call North Canton Chapel their home on Sundays. That's outstanding. 570 people are in groups in this building kind of throughout the week. That's over 1,500 bodies that are moving through these hallways Sunday through Saturday. We've got something every night of the week, and that's wonderful, but it can also be fatal because it breeds this false sense of security that if I am busy for Jesus, then I'm actually obedient to Jesus, and that's not necessarily the case. So I love to free you from your sense of busyness. Here's the truth about discipleship is you are the program. Your life is the curriculum. You don't need another book study. You don't need another classroom. You don't need all the answers because if you wait to have all the answers, then you'll never make disciples. You need three questions, a friendship and three questions. What's God teaching you in your life? What are you going to do about it? How can I encourage you in it? That's what you need to make disciples. Here's how this relates to church planting. Many Christians never participate in the outward movement of the church because it would mean stopping things that we feel an obligation to perpetuate. You don't have to be busy for the Lord. You have to be focused for the Lord. Involvement is kind of like just me sitting in my driveway with my truck in neutral and like revving up the engine because I see like, man, I got a lot of RPMs happening. Like it's generating a lot of heat. I'm burning a lot of fuel, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> it's a danger. Fourth thing, and then what we're going to do about it. Fourth thing is stability. The desire for everything to be fine. 
on the disk test, how many of you are like, are the disk, I forget what all those things are, by the way, there's like the INF stuff and all those other, I, I just know that on the disk test, I'm an S, which means I, I'm supposed to like steady and stable stuff, which doesn't mean I'm a stable person, it just means I like stable stuff. I remember when I was like, um, met with a search committee for my job here, actually, at North Canton Chapel, and some of you served on that committee. And I was asked, what do you think North Canton Chapel needs in this next season? And in like November of 2019, I said stability. And I even stood in front of you like in January of 2020 and said, stability. Huh. If we could just have like look nine weeks down the road, right? Stability is a tricky thing because stability breeds comfort and comfort breeds consumption. I'll give you an example from the coffee world. Starbucks is an example of stability. You can go to Starbucks, they're, they, they're, they're amazing. You can go to Starbucks, drive through to drive through, go up to the little speaker thingy, right? And you can get whatever drink you want with exactly whatever flavoring you want, exact temperature you want it probably, and the time that you want it in like under four minutes. That's stability. And there's a real temptation to look at church the same way. It kind of makes me want to roll up to the Starbucks and just like talk to the speaker and say, I don't know what, just surprise me, I don't care. Just give me something with caffeine and I'm fine. But there's a real temptation where you know when you walk into church here at North Canton Chapel, you know pretty much what the music's going to be like, what the preaching's going to be like, where the coffee's going to be, what your group is going to be like. And it makes me kind of want to get inside there and go, do you know what, God, just surprised me this morning? I don't care. Just surprise me. Don't you want to be surprised by God? Don't you kind of want to just like rattle loose from the predictable a little bit? No, I'm not getting freaky or anything. I'm just saying like we wander into worship <laughs> expecting the normal. And I wonder if we come expecting our menu, if it's really God that we're worshiping or if we're worshiping worship <laughs> or we're worshiping our vision of church. And so maybe this starts off with saying, you know, God, I don't care. I trust you. Just surprise me. Survivorship, church growth, involvement, and stability can kill it. So here's where we're going to go this morning. Um, I toyed around with the idea of like some real like 1,000 foot, like here's what I want you to go and do. I'm not going to do that because I think I want the Holy Spirit to do that. And so if you guys can put up those six, those six principles again. I do believe that God's going to call our church to church planting sometime. I believe that some of you are going to be an answer to that prayer in lots of different ways. I think some of you are called to fund it. I think all of us are called to pray over it. I think some of us are called to go. I think some of you right now are going, gosh, I just want to talk to you more about that. There's all different places we can talk to the Lord and, 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 and ask him to make sense of the thoughts in our hearts. But here's what I want to do. I shortened my sermon, insert amen here, this morning by two minutes, but now I'm over by three, so I took it back. <laughs> See how tricky it is? Here's what I want to do. We're going to have two minutes before the band comes up. And so if you guys want to lower the lights, and if um, we're just going to have some music here just going. I just want you to take two minutes to hear from the Lord. As these are up on the screen, say, okay, Lord, what do you need to shake loose in me so that I can pattern my life after Paul and spin my life outward in maybe a way that I haven't before? So we're going to take two minutes in silence just while there's some soft music playing, just for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And then I'm going to come right back up and pray over us.
So Ben, if you guys want to come on back out, we're going to close our morning by singing this song, Christ Our King. There's a couple of things I'd like for you to do in this moment. Of course, we're going to stand and sing together. A couple of things. Number one, if you came in this morning where you've got a burden on your back and it's very likely that somebody came to your mind or there's something that you've been carrying and you go, God, I just want to get this thing off my back. I want to encourage you, you can head back. There's tables right in the back where the columns are this morning. There's people that would love to pray with you just to take a few moments to hear from you and to pray with you to help carry those burdens. These pillars in the back, you know, the last couple of weeks, they've, they've had some really awesome prayer requests on them. There's the yellow card and then there's the blue card. And so if you've got something on your heart, it's very likely that as we've walked through the morning, maybe somebody's name came to your mind. Maybe a place came to your mind. Maybe there's another word or an idea that's just like kind of on your heart. And so I want to encourage you, maybe during this song, you can head back there and fill out one of those cards. If it's a praise, it's blue. If it's something that you're praying God for, you're asking for, it's a yellow card. You can just fill those out and just stick it on the column. And that's just going to be a reminder for us to be in prayer over these weeks as we take a look at the life of this one man, Paul, who God used to do just incredible things. Stand with me. Lord, we say thank you so much for what you're doing. And so we can sing this song, Christ our King, because you are a king. You tell us where to go and what to do, and you are worthy, Lord. And so we worship you. We love you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.